stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 425 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Catonsville, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. And we are joined today by Matt Matros, who I'm going to assume is in Brooklyn, New York. You got it. Welcome, Matt. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me back. You are our first guest of 2024. Woohoo! And 425. <laughs> Every time I come on, the number just gets crazier and crazier for you guys. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, 425 is a very satisfying number to me. I like I like multiples of five. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, welcome back. I was thinking this is this is what your third appearance on the show now. I believe that's right. Yes. What's what's new since I think it's been about a year since we last spoke with you? Yeah. So, but we did we did a I did an appearance when my last book came out, The Poker Brain, which mm-hmm. was um, this big project where I tried to kind of explain game theory to pretty much any poker player that wanted to be interested in it and how to apply it at the table. And that took a long time, that book. It was a lot of work. I'm proud of it. But in 2023, I wanted something much simpler. So at the end of the year, I just sat down for one month and decided to write up some of the most interesting hands I played over the course of the year. And, I, and at the end, I said, wow, you know, I have a very short book here. Why don't I just put it out? I'm actually really pleased with the result. It was really fun. So I have a new book out called 23 No Limit Hold'em Tournament Hands from 2023. And uh, uh, yeah, I think it's worth checking out and it's short and it's fun. I'm curious because we did an episode towards the end of the year where we brought uh, Nate back on the show and Carlos and I were kind of catching him up on what we felt like was kind of the cutting edge of poker strategy in the two years since Nate had been out of the the poker world. Uh, and I realize you probably didn't organize your book around this in particular, but I'm curious what you think of as kind of the the, the things that are new to you in 2023. You know, what, what was uh, Matt Matros's poker discoveries in, in 2023. Yeah, man. Um, I, it's hard for me to say what's new to me and what was new to everyone else. Cause I think I was a little bit like a few months at least, or if not more behind the curve on some ideas floating around poker, but certainly um, I think people have really drilled down into a lot of the ICM spots and they have a much better sense now of, okay, what's too big of an edge to push at a final table? What's too small? Uh, how do I play different size stacks, different situations? I think that the details on that have gotten a lot more granular and they're more well understood with some of these tools that we have now, like ICMizer and other things to analyze those spots. So I think that's that's one of the things. And also just what I noticed, at least when I was out in Vegas this summer playing some events, the extremely small bets, the use. So over bets had already come into fashion a few years earlier. But now these very, very small bets are coming in. I, I was playing in a World Series event, typical event with thousands of players, and there were some absolute crusher mega pros at the table, and then there were some rank amateurs. And there was a hand where 
you know, it was like a three bet pot or something. And then the amateur player let out for like one blind on the flop and the pro was staring him down. And finally he said, that's a pro bet. <laughs> <laughs> I just started laughing. Uh, and so like people using these extremely small sizings, I think uh, they've gotten from the solvers. And I, that's been interesting to kind of dig into why, why you might do that and when you might continue those small sizings, even on later streets. What's your answer to that question? I'm still trying to, you know, totally grasp, get my mind around it. I mean, it's uh, it's sometimes pretty tough to figure out what the solvers are trying to do. But I think basically what it comes down to is the, if you have a range where you can have lots of different kinds of hands in it, so like medium strength hands, pure bluffs, weak made hands, but also nutted hands. So I'm thinking of a spot where, I was seeing a thread on Twitter. Someone was analyzing a spot where there was a cutoff raise in the, the big blind three bet with two eights. And there was an ace high board, an ace kind of seven deuce or something like that. Uh, maybe a six deuce. And it's just one of these spots where the three better has all these, these pocket pairs, which are kind of like they have showdown value, but you can't really drive them to, to get much drive big bets to get and expect to receive much value out of them. They have some really strong hands, of course, the big aces, and then they have pure air balls. And so if, you're, if your range covers that many different kinds of hands, you can kind of go a lot smaller, it seems. And this way you can get some value out of even like jacks, queens, maybe even tens and stuff. You can get some folds when you have nothing and you can extract a little bit of value out of your weak top pairs. And there's not much your opponent can do about it because you have enough of this really strong hands in your range to keep going and they can't just call you down forever because you, then you'll be getting extracting value out of your kings queens middle pairs so i think the, the more polarized your range is the more you can kind of size up but when the range is messier less polarized I, I think there's more opportunities especially if if you don't have too much trash in your range and you can just kind of make these small bets but what do you think what what, what do you think are the good times to keep firing these really small bets I think you nailed a lot of it. The the one major thing that I would add to that is uh, I think you see it a lot more for out of position. Sometimes like C betting in position on the flop is a bit of an exception to this, but especially on later streets. And it is related to what you said about the the polarization, right? When you're in position, there's really a big difference between a min bet and a check. Yes. Right? Even though they're putting roughly the same amount of money into the pot, zero or very little, but giving your opponent the opportunity to raise you is a big deal. Yes. When you're out of position, like there's very little difference between betting zero and betting one big blind, especially in, into like one big blind into a large pot. So it is kind of like, it, it, it may be that you don't have a nuts. Like, I think this comes up pretty often, you know, like min betting on the river. Uh, either the turn is checked through, or even if you check call the turn, I think you see this sometimes where you don't necessarily have a nuts advantage. Like you're not trying to to bet big and polar. You're like, I don't really want to play a large pot here. So I'd kind of like to check, but like, I do have an equity advantage. Like my range is stronger than my opponents. So what happens if I bet like one blind into a 15 big blind pot is probably my opponent just doesn't fold very often. And so the pot just kind of gets larger like both of, we just put one more blind in with our entire ranges. Like that's a good deal for me. If I have 60% of the equity, if I make a big bet, well, then I'm just kind of like running into the sawmill of my opponent's big hands. Right. You're getting, you're, you're losing all the hands you want to stick around and you're keeping in all the hands you don't. Yeah. And I mean, it is important. You have some, some hands in your range that can call a raise because like yep. otherwise your opponent just could just like raise that little bet. But essentially it's I, like, I think of it mostly as an alternative to checking where it's a, in a scenario where you would otherwise be. So like your example is a good one. Like the, the pocket eights on the ASI board in a three bet pot where it's like, well, I don't really want to like put a lot of money in with eights on, on an ace high board, but so like I could just check the eights, 
but you know why not like putting one big blind in and as you said you get a little bit of protection value from that and sometimes you actually get called by hands that you're ahead of uh it's just like it's not that big of a deal to put in one blind it might not be appealing to do that in position but out of position yeah why not yeah and actually um you mentioned out of position and the river sometimes too and that that comes up actually in the very last hand um that i included in my book i didn't do it but when i analyzed the hand later i wanted to bluff the river and i did successfully bluff the river on this board that was that ran out flop was jack 10 six uh with two diamonds queen of diamonds completing a flush in the turn and then the nine offsuit nine in the river so there's a four line straight and three diamonds on board and so i bluffed with just ace two suited not the flush uh and it succeeded but when i when i analyzed it later the salver says you could just bluff for one blind in that river because you can you can actually get <laughs> better hands to fold for one blind on that board so you know don't don't bother just betting big because you're still going to get called by all the straights and stuff but i mean you can get pairs to or better ace high certainly to fold uh for one blind i was like wow that's a crazy and interesting idea but it does make sense as long as like you said as long as you're only not only doing it with your garbage you have to be getting thin value and even bigger value you know, with those bets sometimes. The guy that busted me from the main event actually was a Brazilian pro who made a lot of these really small bets. And a guy, a guy even called him. He said out loud, I just want to see what you have. He made he made a, a like a one fifteenth size pot bet in the river or something. And the guy said, I just want to I literally said I just want to see what you have. And he showed him, you know, ace is full or something. And the guy folded and that was that. <laughs> Obviously this is not showing up in, in like the salver results, but I kind of suspect that people are well there's any number of ways people could play badly against that but like it's pretty easy to overfold to about a one fifteenth of the pot right like your your sense of uh what hand has a a six percent chance of winning like that's a pretty hard thing to just like wrap your head around uh you know is that king high uh in some situations it probably is and i think that people um i mean then there's like icm considerations of like you actually need to win a little bit more than six percent of the time maybe i imagine there's some people to whom it's like an insult and even if they do have a bad hand they're gonna <laughs> raise it i think there's just like a lot of ways i think just in general like pushing people into parts of the game tree that they're less familiar with especially if you have studied it even a little bit like you don't have to be perfect on it or you just have to be more comfortable with it than your opponents and then good things happen for you yeah and you, you give your opponents a chance to make a mistake that they probably wouldn't make so they they might put money in with a hand that in their mind they were completely done with they were yeah. just definitely folding but instead you get another you get a little more money out of them or they might fold the best hand for some crazy price. And that's obviously a huge mistake. Whereas if you bet big, your opponents are probably going to play more or less correctly. They're they're going to, of course, you know, fold when they don't have really strong hands and they're going to not fold when they do. And so there are times and that's great because you think they have a strong hand and you just want to get value or because you need to bluff out a lot of, you know, halfway decent hands. But I think considering all your options, this is something I think actually Phil Galifon has been talking about for a really long time. Um, which is that most poker players think that there's only certain choices you have in hand. Like, oh, I can't bet. That's a, one tenth pot here. That's too small. Or oh, I can't bet four times. But it turns out if you consider more and more options, it turns out you can actually use more than you might think. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes you're like, no, I can only I can only shove or fold here. There's nothing else to really do. But other times you can be like, oh, really? When it's blind versus blind and you have eight blinds, the solver says I'm supposed to have like a sizable limp range here and then the big blind is supposed to raise to three and a half times instead of shoving a lot this is nuts but it's true <laughs> so uh yeah 
Yeah, I, that that might actually answer my next question, which is, uh, <laughs> what other is there anything else that you would point to besides like ICM and, and the small bets that you think of as you know the the cutting edge twenty twenty three poker strategy? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's cutting edge for for the new year for for last year or for twenty twenty four, but I'm personally focusing on. Um, yeah, trying to nail down some of those blind versus blind spots because they do come up a lot in tournaments. And I was content with the the short stacks pretty much just play shove or fold there from the small blind with like say 15 blinds or shorter. But now I now I've gotten to some of trying to learn the more, you know, how how to get a little more out of those very small stacks by having having these limp ranges, having different kind of race sizes from the big blinds. So I'm trying, I'm trying to study that. And I'm also just um for me personally, I know um, every poker player has wants to try to be honest about where their leaks are and where their strengths are. And one spot where I not often, but every once in a while, I'm like, there is no way I should have called there. I, so I need to work a little bit more on my fold button. So I'm just trying to look at a few more spots where like, OK, when this reg goes full pot on the flop and full pot on the turn, even though I have a decent top pair, I don't have to call here. They This this person is not sophisticated enough to have enough bluffs here. And I, and, and trusting my reads, that's, that's another issue because um, I like to play a pretty theoretically sound game. And so I don't do a lot of folding of like check folding of top pair for, you know, the first or second barrel, but a, I I've played enough now that I can break away from that more often than maybe I do in the past. And B actually, if you look at some of the solver solutions, especially when you're deeper. And I haven't studied too many of the very deep stack solver sims, but if people start making really huge bets, you can actually play reasonably tight. Like you can actually just check and call once with top pair and then be done with the hand. So it's uh, spots like that, just trying to say, okay, you know, something I read on Twitter that Carlos actually said, which is for tournaments that a, a bad fold is better than a bad call. And that's something I need to work on in my game because my, my biggest strengths over the years have been sniffing out bluffs, maximizing value, and I'm good at those things. But sometimes I get carried a bit carried away with it. So I'm trying to find the spots to not get carried away. I don't know if that's cutting edge, but that's for me in my my game, something I'm working on. I do remember you last time you were on, you kind of had the same uh difference of opinion that that solo costa had with andrew and i i think you both came on the show and you both mentioned that you like to bluff catch rivers because people bluff too much and andrew and i were like wait what <laughs> like in, in our experience people um didn't bluff catch too did, didn't bluff too much in the river and um studying uh more of solo stuff what i realized is that the difference was his background was more so in cash games and through his uh, population analysis, he discovered that people actually do bluff more than theoretically optimal on the river in cash games. Maybe that didn't apply so much in the um, software um, US based tournaments that I was playing in. And I'm curious if, if that was the case for you as well. Like, well, like, I don't know if, I don't even know if you remember this or if I'm misremembering it, but I thought I remember you saying that you tend to bluff catch rivers a lot because in your experience, people bluff too much there. Does that sound accurate? It does sound accurate. I think this is a consistent, actually, difference of opinion I have with a lot of um, poker people. I, I think my view of it is 
most people are bad at value betting is the way I would phrase it. And mm, so yeah. if you're if you're bad at value betting, it follows that you're bluffing too often. That's what that's basically what being bad at value betting means. It means when you bet the river, your ratio is does not have enough value bets to bluffs in it. And so it's not so much that um if you, if, you, if you don't think of it as over bluffing the river, but instead think of it as under value betting, it maybe starts to sound a little more logical. But I would say that um, it's also really context dependent. And so I I try not to make too many calls in the river just because eh, people don't value bet the river enough. I do that sometimes, especially with a specific spot where I'm like, they in this spot, people need some huge hand to value bet and they wouldn't value bet with just, you know, a bad two pair or something. And so I think a typical regular player is just not going to have enough value bets in their range here. So I, I might do that, but I also, I really try to take every hand in its own context. And usually if I'm bluff catching, there's some spot in the hand where something doesn't quite add up. Like really they have this hand, but they check the flop or really they have this hand and they sized this part of their raising on you know, their, their turn raise or their pre-flop raise or whatever this way. And so I usually try to have a better reason than just ah people over bluff the river but when I'm when I'm bluff catching. There's a way in which I don't know if it matters like who's right about what the population does as long as you're good at figuring out in individual hands and certainly there are some hands where I'm like okay I've, there's nothing suspicious about this line. This person is playing a hand and I definitely think they could have what they're representing. That's the kind of spots I'm talking about. I think this this was a this was a painful bust out I had actually in um, the si a six max ring event pretty deep where I raised first to act and I got called by the button. I had queen jack and the flop was uh, queen high and I checked and immediately full pot from my opponent and uh, without getting into too many of the details, I called there and I talked about this with other players and they were they basically said that. Once the full pot comes again on the turn, I can just fold. Like the the fish in, or, so he wasn't this opponent wasn't necessarily an established fish, but had already played a bunch of hands. And while it could have been, there there were some combo draws out there that were possible. It wasn't like a guarantee that my hand was no good. It was a situation where the risk of calling a big bet on the turn, setting up what would have been like a half pot size shove on the river was just too great compared to the reward of sitting there with my 60 blinds or whatever I had to start the hand. I guess it would have been down to like 50 blinds or something if I folded there, but whatever. The, the point is having 50 blinds deep in a tournament is really valuable. And so that's not something you necessarily want to risk in an unclear spot unless you have an actual reason. So those are the kind of spots I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that I'm not relying on quote unquote, well, the, the solver would say never check and Check call, check fold with top pair. First of all, that turns out it's not even true. Um, <laughs> solvers, solvers, solvers is like could have folded on the turn. And second of all, I don't need to rely on that because all of my instincts were saying, this guy probably has it. What are you doing? And so when it doesn't happen often, but in the rare moments when I kind of overrule my instincts and get crushed for it, really sets me back to thinking. And that's kind of what I've been on lately. And so I, it's, you know, this is not the first time in my career and it probably won't be the last that I make some call where I'm like, what am I doing? But I'm trying to have that happen fewer times so that I can lean into my strengths, which is snapping off bluffs when I have real good logic for it. And that's usually what I do. But, you know, every once in a while, things go awry. It's a tough game. <laughs> right. Well, we've got a few hands we'd like to uh, discuss with you in, in more detail, but first on the subject of uh, trusting your instincts, uh, I will say I recently took uh, withdrew my entire balance from America's card room. 
Matt, my understanding is you've you've not been playing on on any of like the U.S. facing sites. Well, I play on the the U.S. sites that are available in New Jersey. I live in Brooklyn. Oh, sorry, yeah, on any any of the like gray market sites. Yeah, no, I no, I only play on WSOP and you know Poker Stars New Jersey and and the MGM New Jersey client. I've not played on ACR or any of yeah the other the what were you calling it the gray market? Yeah, <laughs> sites, yeah. <laughs> But you're have you been following the um kind of what's been I guess I mean GG is not even a US gray market site, but right. the, the stuff that's been going on on uh GG and on America's card room uh just kind of been revealed in the last few weeks. Yeah, I can't say I'm an expert on the details, but I've generally been following the story, yes. Yeah, I, I I'm probably not an expert on the on the details either, but I'll I'll try to give a little summary for for people who are listening. These are actually two, I think unrelated incidents, but they happen to be coming out around the same time. So one is GG Poker had essentially a super user. Um, it was a little bit different from what had happened. Well, the, the big difference was it does not appear to have been an inside job, which is the case at um, at uh, UB slash Absolute way back when, like the original super user scandal. My understanding of, of what happened is that this person was able to exploit um, something on the the client side that the, so like when you when you get all in, you know th this is a feature on a number of sites. They'll tell you what your equity is against your opponent's hand, and so I guess that was being like calculated client side or or you know th this was information that was uh, available, and so the player was able to get access to this information. So they couldn't see their opponent's cards, but they knew how much equity they had against their opponent's hand, which is like about as good as seeing their cards. And so you know they were able to play you know like make perfect decisions and you know, there were some suspicious hands that people shared where they call all in on the turn with like jack high no draw correctly um and much like the super user on uh ub slash uh ultimate they won a pretty high profile tournament uh, while super using which does leave open the question of like is every super user a moron or are there <laughs> super users who are getting away with this because they're not winning major tournaments with jack high calls so that was the the GG. Oh, so the, then uh, GG kind of this was shared on on two plus two, and then GG put out a statement that kind of implied that they had detected that this was happening, which one of two things is true: either they didn't detect it, they just like saw the two plus two post, and and then like we're trying to take credit for having discovered it, or they did discover it but did a shitty job of of correcting it. It does actually seem like it might have been the latter case because they tried to. Um, to update the software in a way that would prevent the player from doing this, but the player just like blocked software update. Like they just didn't update their software and kept super using instead. So yeah, that was that was the mess on on. I mean, that's probably not the only issue on, on GG, but that was the the uh, most recent one. Uh, also, I think I read something that said that the flaw that this guy was able to exploit was found in the. Um, emojis where you can give somebody a thumbs up or a thumbs down so it was even like a part of the site that wasn't even necessary that caused this big hole like you know before they had emojis this flaw wasn't there but because they added these like dumb emojis where you can like you know throw tomatoes at people or give people thumbs up <laughs> that opened up this hole to where the players could get robbed yeah I yeah i was, I was going to mention that actually carlos i found that i found that amusing as well that the flow the flaw was exploited in just some totally incidental feature that no one even really used i think except apparently to hack and figure out the equity of the hand which is <laughs> kind of amazing that someone figured that out too but yes that i they did find that funny 
Yeah, and then the uh, the thing on America's card room, there's there's been concerns, and I think like credible allegations of, of bots on there for a while, and even in the absence of credible allegations, I think now that the the it is feasible enough for people to have access to like real time solutions that even if site like uh, you know GTA Wizard has things in place to try to prevent people from using the tool in, in real time. But once the technology exists, like computers are fast enough to be giving you this information in real time, even if someone was not using a publicly facing tool like GTA Wizard to do this, like there's no reason that someone couldn't just like build that for themselves and, and be running it in, in real time. So I think that the like real time assistance thing is, is a pretty big concern. Bots running is a pretty big concern. People running bots that are good enough to to win. I think it's reasonable to think that those those things were happening. I was winning on money on ACR anyway, and I didn't have really better options for playing. So I was like, well, I guess, you know, as long as I'm still winning money, I'll like accept that that risk is happening. But um, someone posted on uh, two plus two, and I'm not really in a position to judge this, but it's been accepted as pretty credible by the community. And it seems credible to me uh, about a bot ring that may have taken as much as like $10 million out of the ACR um, community. And then ACR's response to this was <laughs> extremely weird. Uh, <laughs> they put out a video, like essentially issuing a challenge to people to try to run a bot on their site and claiming that they're going to give you a hundred thousand dollars if you could like successfully run a bot on their site. And I don't think anyone believed that they were actually going to pay out the hundred thousand dollars. Like that's just the reputation that they have and they pretty quickly sort of like added some more stipulations and then like rescinded the whole thing and pretended the reason they were rescinding it was because of community outrage and not because they had no intentions of ever paying it out in, in the first place. So like the, the bot thing was bad enough and then it was so unprofessionally handled that I was like, I don't really like have, having money on the site period. And I think that there also could just be like a run on the bank situation. So I'm going to go ahead and, and take my money off of there. Uh, and that took it didn't actually take that long. It took like 48 hours for a, a Bitcoin withdrawal. But previously, my Bitcoin withdrawals had taken like two or three hours. So it was a little concerning that it was like taking 10 times as long as it usually did. But I, I did eventually get the money off of there. But I guess I, I do want to say, because I've talked about playing on ACR before, I don't know that I've ever explicitly encouraged anyone to do it, but I will now explicitly discourage people from, from doing it. Um, or at least I will say that right now I have decided I am not comfortable keeping money on, uh, on America's card room. I think that's the right call. Yeah, I've 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 not never been comfortable with it personally. Just as just from a comfort level, I understood why other people did. I certainly didn't fault anyone for doing it, but for me, I'm pretty conservative with stuff like that, and so this is definitely just even more evidence to discourage me. By the way, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Chris Moneymaker who posted the the challenge on behalf of ACR about the hundred thousand dollars or whatever for proving the bot. Is that right? I think Chris Moneymaker and Ebony Kenny were both in the video. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that's not a great look. Yeah, and then there was some stuff with like Chris. People were asking follow up questions to the video about how the contest was going to work, and and Chris gave some answers to those questions that were then contradicted by like the official stuff that ACR put out later. The whole thing was just extremely unprofessional. But yeah, I guess you know that that was probably related to your decision to just not play on these sites. And like even before you had access to WSAP.com, you know, like back in 2013 or whatever, you know, you you were not playing on uh, on ACR or any of those sites. Right, that's true. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I didn't play any online poker for a while after Black Friday. I mostly just stuck to in-person events, and that was working fine for a while. So it wasn't an issue. When, you know, when you're running good, you don't think about this kind of stuff. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, once once it became like, oh man, I'm not winning every tournament anymore. I better figure out other places to play. You know, especially when live poker went away during the pandemic, I 
now I've made many, many trips to New Jersey to, to play online, which is fine, but I'm I'm ready for New York to come on board with the rest of the world and have some real online poker. That's for sure. Yeah, that's kind of where I was as well. I mean, I, I thought uh, 10 years ago or, or more than that, you know, that, that ACR was going to go down you know, pretty soon after Poker Stars and, and Full Tail, the, you know, all these, I don't even know it was ACR then, it might have been Black Chip or whatever it was called. But, you know, the, these these other sites that were continuing to do business in the US, like I thought the writing on the wall was going to be, uh, you know, was was there for them as well. And that didn't happen. Uh, and for years and years, that didn't happen. And I saw the people were making money on those sites. And then I, I had played like occasionally and had like a big tournament. I put a little bit of money on there. And then it was yeah, during the pandemic when uh, live poker was not available that I started playing on there more. And uh, I did okay. I actually had my best year last year on there, which is surely when the games were worst. Um, but yeah, you you had mentioned, I think, when we were talking offline about like maybe I was missing the boat. And I will say it was not a particularly lucrative boat that you were missing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. And actually, Andrew, I saw an article today that said Maryland is moving to try to at least, at least introduce a bill to legalize online poker what's up what's up with that are you are you up oh, to date on this story? Uh, i i am not this this is news to me although i will say that moving to introduce a bill is a pretty low i know um... well i mean we, we've been there in new york forever every year yeah. it's like they're going to introduce a bill and nothing ever comes of it. although this year maybe who knows where you know every year it sounds like it's more realistic than the last but then then nothing happens so i'm definitely not getting my hopes up but i'm going to still follow it and see what happens yeah i think we're, we're kind of in the same boat i I don't follow it closely enough to handicap, but I think I if if I were if I were forced to choose, I would say you're more likely to get it before I do. But who knows? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I'm not in a position either. I, I guess I I kind of had the the sense that things were were moving along more credibly in New York, but it's so one thing that happens, or my understanding of of what happens with like some of the consultants that these sites hire to or lobbyists or, or whatever, you know, introducing a bill is a very easy thing to do, and yep. just so like I think it's pretty easy for a lobbyist to point and say, oh look, we introduced we we got a, a congressperson to introduce this bill, and like that's. It, really like if, if there's not support for it, it's easy for a bill to just like die or never even go to a vote or something. So I think it is sometimes like the kind of thing that lobbyists do to appease, um, you know, when, when their clients are like, what have you done for us? And they're like, look, we got this bill introduced. <laughs> um, so I think it, it's important for, not, not that I'm lecturing you on this map, but just for people who are like listening or who are um, yeah, totally. following this stuff, like don't, don't read too much into the fact that you know, someone somewhere is pushing for this. It needs to be a, uh, without a lot of, a lot of support behind it, that's introducing a bill doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, I agree with that. It's been, been that way every year. Bill, the bill doesn't even get into the budget. So, uh, when we actually hear the governor stop talking about it, I'll start to get excited. Right. Yeah. Carlos, do you want to introduce this hand that you and Matt played together? Yeah, yeah. Speaking of um, playing on regulated sites, uh, Matt and I um, played some, um, it's probably a circuit event on uh, WSOP.com. Um, not too long, I don't believe, after he was on last time. And um, we discussed um, on that episode and, you know, around that time in general, I was learning a lot of GTO stuff. And so I had an opportunity to play against someone who I knew 
as Matt said, plays kind of a theoretical game. So I was like, oh, this is a good time to try some of this GTO shit I've been learning about. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I tried my hand at it and we'll see how it went. So in this hand, um, we're about 50 bigs deep and it folds around to Matt on the button. And he raises, so the, the blinds are 25500 Matt covers me. I have 27K, so a little bit over 50 bigs. And he raises to 1200 from the button. And I'm in the big blind with King 4 offsuit. Now, this is the sort of hand that, for me in the past, would just be like, you know, a snap fold. Uh, and then lately, you know, uh, once I started to learn a little bit more, I was willing to call with this hand. But then once I started looking at the solver outputs, I was like, oh, they three bet these hands sometimes. And so I decided to try that in this spot. So uh, for starters, that, so so let's just start there. Like, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on three betting uh, king four offsuit here? Button versus big blind. Yeah, um, I, I don't I don't have the chart, uh, the solver output in front of me, but I think you're right that a lot of those kind of um, raggy offsuit aces and kings have like a little sliver of three bet in their solution. They're definitely not one of the most common um, three betting hands, and we could look this up. I'm sure to um, you guys maybe even have looked it up already. Uh, off the top of my head, though, I would say that it's probably some low percentage three bet, but it's uh, it's certainly not like a crazy thing to do because it's one of those hands where um obviously you very clear decision if i end up for betting and also even post flop you're you're probably not going to have too many tough boards now i know you ended up getting kind of a tough board but it's uh it sounds to me as you're describing the hand now like you wanted to like try experimenting with this new style and like trying to play a theoretically sound game and so i think that's actually a fine reason to try to play like this if you're if you're trying to incorporate some new ideas into your game i think you should you should go for it and you should you should do it yeah it, for me it would probably be i think i would pretty much purely call there in that spot but uh i don't think it's like wrong to sometimes three bet i think it's you know it's probably at least pretty reasonable and again the the kind of fundamentals of it aside I think experimenting with a new strategy is going to be helpful long-term regardless. Right. Andrew, any thoughts before? I, I do have the software I put in front of me. So before I refer to that, did you have any thoughts, Andrew? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just say it, in general, I think this is probably not especially applicable for playing against Matt, but I think the right way in general to interpret those little slivers of like, oh, it's it's mostly a call, but like there's a, a little bit of three betting going on, um, is that you know, for for any mixed strategy, what that's really telling you is that it's very sensitive to your opponent's response. And if you are want to be truly agnostic about what your opponent's response is going to be, which I think is your approach to to playing against someone like Matt, then you know, getting that sliver right is is important. But in general, I think you you are going to be better off just trying to anticipate. Uh, do I think maybe even more more important than do I think this person is going to overfold to a three bet is how wide do I think this person is opening in the first place? Um, do I think that they if if their opening range is overly tight, this is probably not going to be a good three bet. If so, I think a lot of people open the button wider than a solver would, and against those people, this probably will be a good three bet. So it's not necessarily about how do they respond to the th to, like are they going to overfold to the three bet as much as it is are they opening too wide in in the first place. I think that's mm -hmm. probably the main thing that this is exploiting. 
And so I, I think what would happen if you took all of those slivers, you know, all, all of those little like, eh, the solver three bets this like less than 10% of the time. If you just rounded all those down to zero, I think the exploit for the button would be now they get to open more hands because you know, they're just, they're getting three bet at, at a lower frequency. So that's really what you're keeping in check is your opponent's like excessive button opening. And I find that a useful way of thinking about what would the exploit be. So if, if you never three bet a hand like this, then the button could open more. So if the button is already opening more, then you're probably incentivized to err on the side of three betting this. If the button is already opening tighter as though they were going to get three bet by hands like this one, then you probably don't want to three bet a hand like this one. Right, right. And that's kind of what I was going for here. Knowing that Matt would have a sufficiently wide button opening range, uh, this only matters a little bit, I think, but the uh, small blind in this hand was a little bit tighter, so that might even incentivize him to open a little bit more if he knew that. And also... Um, not sure how much Matt knows about my game, but if he knew anything about me before our conversation last time, I was not capable of three betting hands like that, <laughs> like this, which would give him even more incentive to open water, as you said, Andrew. So this is me trying to get get up to date <laughs> with guys like Matt and and uh, try to play a little bit more balance. Uh, now, I will say this because this hand went post-flop. We have to look at a chippy VSIM. And so this might be a little bit off. And but I do know this was earlier on in the tournament where the ICM is gonna matter a little bit, but not a ton like it would be later on in the tournament. So that that's the caveat I want to give that I'm looking at a, a chippy VSIM. And I think you both might be surprised that some of the hands in this range actually aren't that much of a sliver. So According to GTO Wizard, King Six offsuit is three bet here like 42% of the time. And other hands that are around 30, 40% would be Queen Six offsuit, Jack Seven offsuit, 10 Seven offsuit. Like that's pretty surprising to me. And then these might not be as surprising to you to you guys, but like Ace Five off through Ace Nine off, those are all around 50% three bets as well. So the, the trashy kings generally are. I, I've seen basically in other solves, what Matt has seen is that you see a little bit of a sliver. Like, for example, king six is at 42%, but king five is only at 6%. And so occasionally you see those slivers, but I was surprised to see that king six was more than a sliver. And I was also surprised to see that king four is never supposed to be a three bet here. So <laughs> I did not know that I needed to make as big of a distinction between King 4 and King 6 uh, until I did this. So it was definitely worth it to um, to learn that you can't treat all those rag king, raggy kings the same. Do you have any idea why that would be or if it matters? Like if, if you're just doing like 10% of all the rag kings instead of like 40% of King 6 and none of the others. And maybe, maybe there's a good reason for it, but off the top of my head, I can't think of what it would be. Do you know, Andrew? I was I was about to suggest I, I think that if if you look at the EVs of those it's probably not a big distinction like I, I it's hard for me to imagine that the EV of, of three betting king four is that much lower than the EV of three betting king six it's probably you know if if it's mixing three bets and calls with king six then those must be exactly the same EV it's entirely possible that the EV of you know three betting king four is just like point zero one big blinds less than calling it or something where that's still enough that the solver is going to do it pure but the truth is like if if Matt's opening a little too wide or like overfolding a little bit too much to a three bet, then they're both going to be profitable three bets. And if Matt's opening a little 
tighter or he was going to format wider or something like that, then they're both going to be losing three bets. Since you, since you say that, Andrew, I, I actually looked up on GTO Wizard the EV compare and the three bet for King 4 Offsuit wins 0.05 and the call wins 0.06 so it's essentially the same thing right uh in terms of in terms of ev i, I am seeing the same output you are carlos that king six is um a pretty high percentage three bet but i i don't yeah i i don't think it actually matters too much which of those you choose i think um my guess would be that the solver probably has me as the button folding stuff like king seven offsuit king eight raise folding like king seven offsuit king eight offsuit maybe even king nine offsuit that i'm to this uh yeah probably king nine offsuit right to this to this three bet so um often what you'll see is the solver will take the the best hand that unblocks that that's worse than those those raised folds and unblocks them and so it chooses that one to be its main three betting candidate so if like the worst king i open is king seven which i'm not saying it is it, it, it might be worse than that but if if that's the case that might be why the solver is picking that um, I'm, but I'm just speculating here. I haven't really looked at it closely. And I'm now looking at button response. Oh, yeah, even King 10 offsuit is folding to this three bet. Surprisingly, even Queen Jack offsuit has slivers of folds here. And so does King 8 suited and Queen 8 suited, which I'm pretty surprised to see that those hands would ever fold in this spot. But yeah, it, that that looks to be pretty close to right. It, it's, it's also the opening range I'm looking at for a button um, has a little King 5 offsuit and then all of King 6 offsuit. So yeah, the idea of unblocking the King 7 through King 10 offsuit, but still having um, st a little more equity, like a slightly better hand, I guess is why the solver picks that, that King 6 so often. And that, that could be a useful way to remember it. But in practice, I think if you're just if you're not going to bother memorizing which of the, the rag kings to three bet and just decide that they're all slivers and then use some of the factors that Andrew was talking about and determining where the three bet, I think you'll probably be fine. Yeah, I agree with that. I will I will point out though that according to what I'm looking at here, the EV of the King Four is 0 0.06. Right. And the and the EV of the King Six is 0.19. So that's three times as much. I don't know how significant it is. That feels sort of significant to me. Uh, no, that that's very significant. Yeah. The, the the numbers that Matt quoted did not sound significant at all. But what you just said, that's a big difference. Yeah, so Matt quoted the value of calling King 4 versus the value of 3-betting King 4. Like, that's close enough to where it's not that big of a deal. I'm sorry, yeah. No, so, yeah, Matt, Matt's comparison is the relevant one. Right. So so my comparison was the EV of 3-betting King 4 versus the EV of 3-betting King 6. Uh, I got Yes, yes. Yeah, so yeah, King 6, I mean, but King 6 is also a more profitable call. Yeah, it's just, it's also, it's a better, it's just better hand, Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. I don't think the point one blinds is that wild of an EV difference, but it's it's definitely something. It's not nothing. I do agree that we could probably get away with doing it with all these combos like 10% of the time and not be too far off. Right. Okay. So you choose to do it. And if, if I recall correctly, you sized relatively big here. I don't remember how much you made it, but I think I think you made it pretty big. I did. So you opened to 1,200. And again, the big blind is 500. I made it 5,400, so um, a little bit more than um, four times your raise. And that's also close to um, GTO approved, um, according to the solver here. The solver likes going two point, I mean, the opener is 2.3 big blinds, 
and the solver goes 10.3 big blinds. So I think the numbers are kind of close here. And this was something I learned years ago, and I wrote an article about it when I watched Ike Haxton play in the very first Poker Masters uh, event that they had at PokerStars, I mean, at um, PokerGo. And I was blown away at how big his three bet sizes were from out of position. So I just watched that that footage and studied like there were spots where he used really big sizes and then other spots where he used like really small sizes. Most this is like pre-flop and post-flop decisions. So this isn't all like out of position three bets. But the thing I do remember is that his out of position three bets were like huge compared to what I was used to at the time. And so I wrote an article about it, basically trying to dissect what he was thinking in those spots. And he was kind enough to read the article for me and, and tell me if I got it right. And he said that, yeah, I pretty much nailed his thought process in a lot of those spots. And so that was the first time I learned, you know, how important it was to go bigger when you're out of position, because this is like, like four and a half times the raise here, I think is a lot bigger than people were doing back then. But I think that's starting to become a little bit more standard. Maybe 4X is what people are doing. But four and a half is kind of like my default here. Yeah, definitely 3X would be too small. And so you definitely want to go bigger than that. I think, yeah, probably 4X is more of a default. Uh, and to be clear, when they say the solver is recommending, you know, 10.3 blinds total, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's just the the problem that the programmers entered into the solver it's like okay the button has opened for 2.3 here are the choices in the big line you can call you can go 10.3 or you can shove i think are the gto wizard options what's the solution for that and so if you're trying to hew to what the solver's solution is then yes you should mimic their ray sizes exactly but we could have asked the solver to solve for okay the choices instead are 2.3 and then 9.6 instead of 10.3 or something like that. And it would have spit out some other you know, output and some of these hands would still be three bets, presumably um, presumably more than would be three bets if you could size slightly smaller. So I think um, I think it's a good to work off of the solver's solution and then just kind of know that if you did want to size, you shouldn't go too small here for sure. But if you, want to, if you don't want to go quite this big, you can probably get away with even more three betting if you wanted to but anyway yeah i think um it does still feel weird to me to be three betting this large when we're only 50 blinds deep to be going to 10.3 but yeah i mean i'll have to read your article to get more into it and i do agree that you you don't you don't want to go much less if at all less than 4x so it's maybe maybe um a somewhat minor point but i i was definitely um i wasn't totally sure what to make of this sizing that's that's for sure so uh if you, you succeeded in confusing me a little that's step one maybe maybe even more than a little but uh <laughs> i you know well so i won't spoil the hand you, you can continue telling it so you, so you made you made this big three bet and then i called right on the button and so then we got to a flop yeah and so this is kind of what i was thinking is like i generally know the sizes that the solver likes. And, and maybe Andrew can speak more on as to why that size is the one that GTO Wizard has. Like, I'm not sure how they come up with the sizes they use. My, my guess is that they start by using um, several different sizes and then they just kind of like, you know, consolidate to the one that's used the most often to simplify things. 
but that's just a guess. I'm not sure if that's exactly how it's done. Yeah, I, I know that it's, I think it's somewhere in between. Like it, it's not just uh, they just pulled a number out of their head. And, oh, we'll just run it at this, right? Like I, I know that they did some um, some sort of like preliminary experiments to get a sense of like what sizes they should test it with in every situation. Um, I think that, you know, when we've seen uh, solvers that were not bound in this way, like uh, Pluribus, I think it was like mixing up his preflop sizes a lot. Um, so I think that like the, the, the actual true GTO preflop solution probably does not involve just one three bet size. Like right. there probably are like multiple three bet sizes. And so you know, th this is like a simplification that was informed to some degree by experimentation is is my guess. But is like there's a lot of of wiggle room there. And I think Matt's point is a good one of like it's not. Uh, there's some reason to think that like the, the fact that the solver, the, whatever process GTO wizard used to like arrive at this is the size that they're going to use in, in their sim is meaningful in that it's like, this is definitively better than like 2.5 X or something, but it's, it's not so sensitive that it's like, Oh, 4.5 is definitely better than 4.2. You know, like they didn't <laughs> test every possible size. They, they probably did test a few you know, significantly different sizes and then chose the one that sort of seemed best if you were going to choose just one. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So according to GTO Wizard and Isla and also Ike Haxton, so far so good. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we get to the flop because Matt does call, and um, the flop is King of Spades, Queen of Diamonds, Five of Diamonds, and I have King Four with no diamond. And so the other GTO approved sort of thing that I know is. To like when in doubt in three bed pots, just see back quarter pot. And I was in doubt. <laughs> and so normally I would go quarter pot here, but another little Carlos rule I'll use is if you want to make a bet and you're not so in love with it, try betting a little bit smaller. Like that was something that I, I discovered um, back in the day battling with um, Poker Snowy. It was so often where like, they would tell me that, okay, the correct size is like two thirds pot. And for that size, uh, you, you can't bet this hand. You, you have to check. But then whenever I would look at the um, EV um, of the smaller bet, it would be higher than the EV of the check. And I, and I think that the idea was Poker Snowy would choose a size and then build a somewhat balanced strategy around that. But if you wanted to like deviate, you could do get a higher EV with a more exploitable bet size. And so that's when I learned that, you know, you can kind of get away with smaller bets and spots. So I actually knew that this is a spot where at least I thought this was a spot where a quarter pot would be reasonable. But I like purposely downsized to more like 20 percent of the pot here. And so. Uh, whether we take that into account or not, let, let's just go with this question. What do we think about a small bet here around quarter pot? I I like it personally, and I think um, it speaks to some of the things we were even talking about at the beginning of the show, like when you can use yes really small bets. I've I've seen some of the similar things you're talking about. Like I have um uh one like a cheap and dirty one of these solver apps that just gives you the options of one third or two third pot on every flop, and sometimes I'm like certain spots where there's let's say a low paired board or something it will just have early even early raisers checking back some huge amount of the time but if you give them the option to bet like a min bet it's like oh great i can min bet no i'll do that i'll do that almost every time uh and so 
Yeah, this is to me, this is a spot where, yeah, you're going to have so many different kinds of hands in your range here that you can kind of just make a small, really small bet with all of them and then let me try to figure out what to do. Uh, I'm not going to be able to fold a pair for this sizing, I don't think. So you're going to get value out of all my like middle pairs that didn't shove on you preflop, which will probably be a lot. I'm not just going to rip 50 blinds in, I don't think, with you know two sixes or something here. So at least I don't think I am. So it's and uh you've you've hit enough of this with this particular hand i mean i think you're fine trying to get some value out of it you're not really looking for an excuse to fold the hand and so that this just kind of psychologically that this small bet is more likely to be easier to play which is not there's not really a good not really a good reason honestly to do it but if you if you think of your range in this way we're like okay I'm betting here knowing I have lots of worse hands in this when I'm making this sizing. It, it might help you be more clear about your range. Like, oh, I'm saying all this knowing what happens on the turn and wondering if, <laughs> if, if this ended up getting us in trouble. But it's it certainly seems a, a small bet here with pretty much your entire range, I think, makes a lot of sense to me. What do you think, Andrew? Uh, I was just going to say that what, what you said about, um, I, I think our earlier conversation is extremely relevant here. Like, I think this is exactly one of those cases we were talking about where being at a position, you get hands like these where, I mean, I think it, with an SPR of two, you mostly are just going to be like sucking it up and stacking it off with top pair, even though it's like a bad kicker in a three bed pot. But um, you're not really thrilled to be putting in a ton of money. So I think just like, and you're going to have a lot of other hands that aren't, king for like you're gonna have the pocket eights or whatever so yeah th th this seems to me like heuristically exactly one of those spots we were talking about where you know betting betting small with small being quite small when the spr is, is too like even going below quarter pot seems pretty reasonable my only um like caveat on that is i know sometimes these these more broadway heavy boards sometimes are using larger bet sizes, even with shallow stack sizes, just because of the number of like high equity hands that your high equity draws in particular that, that players can have. Um, but I don't know how well that would apply here. Yeah. So when I look it up in the solver, according to GTO Wizard, these numbers might be a little bit off, but GTO Wizard has around 24 bigs in the middle. It checks range 70% of the time here. And its most frequent bet size is actually 12 bigs. So like half pot is like the size it chooses 19% um, of the time, but 5% of the time it will go for a quarter pot bet. And because King five, King four was not a hand at three bets, we can actually just look at King five and King six. Well, King six uh, would be because King five is too bad. So if we look at King six, that one, um, King six would prefer a bet of around half pot here, um, 40% of the time, but it does use the quarter pot bet 10% of the time. So, wait, Carlos, did you say that it's checking 70% of the time here after this preflop action? Yeah, wow, that's that's surprising to me. Yeah, me too. I think, um, and maybe that's something to do with the Broadway interaction that. Andrew is talking about because I, you know, I'm going to have a lot of hands that interact with that board in the range that raise calls pre-flop. And so maybe this is not as good to flop as it looks like for the three bet range. Uh, and maybe it is more polarizing. Uh, maybe because if, if you don't want to bet, like if you don't want to bet range here, if you, if you are checking 70%, then of course it makes sense to use the bigger sizing a bit more often because you're going to have a much more polarized range. If you want to bet everything, you kind of have to bet small, I think. But if you're, 
if you're going to do what the solver is doing and check 70% of the time, then yes, you, when you do bet, you'll want to size up. So I, I mean, um, but that's interesting though. And I, I think it probably is relevant to our hand because um, we're, we're used to making, I think a lot of small C bets here because a lot of times buttons are just calling too often pre-flop. And so they just don't take as good a range to this flop as, as they're supposed to, whereas I'm not doing that. So I, I may, maybe um, this is, this is a good uh learning point here actually which is that this is for someone who's constructed their range pretty well this is actually a pretty decent flop for the flatter especially if i've shoved some of those middle pairs right this flop especially bad for like jackson tens or whatever i don't even have those hands then you're not really trying to you know milk those hands anymore and that that that's interesting that's uh i'm glad you you brought this to my attention sorry so okay so but with your specific hand, though, it sounds like at least small bet was at least reasonable. Yes, uh, around 10% of the time, it would uh, be okay with a small bet here. And so that's what I went for. And uh, you call. And so now we go to the turn with like six and a half thousand in the middle. And I have 19,000 back. And the turn is the jack of diamonds. So again, the board is king of spades. Queen of diamonds, five of diamonds, and now the jack of diamonds on the turn. And Carlos, I think I think you misspoke. You said six thousand in the middle, nineteen in stack. You had sixteen in the middle and nineteen in stack, right? Is that does that sound right? Yes, yeah, sixteen. If I said six, that was wrong. Yeah, yes. yeah, okay. Yeah, thank you. So a little bit over um, a pot size bet left behind, and this is where I run into trouble studying solver work because there's so many times where the pre-flop decision is kind of like easy. Like you can just uh, like that, like that one for the most part, it's, it's not that hard to get, you know, pre-flop right. And then for me <laughs> in the three bet pots, that's not that hard either. You just bet quarter pot. And river, like it's amazing how many times I look at solver outputs on the river. And if you, if it thinks the opponent is capped, like going all in on a river is almost always a reasonable option. Like four times the pot or whatever. Right. Yeah. You see that four times the pot. And especially when the SPR is small like this, like that would be a reasonable option. So yeah. almost every street I can kind of like wing it on, except the turn. <laughs> the turn is the one street where I just so often have no clue what to do. And what I do know is that once I three bet and get called and then C bet on this flop, your range, like this card is like, I think fairly good for your flop calling range. And my hand is is fairly uh, marginal at this point. And this is where I decided to check. Now that I'm not sure if it's good or not. I'm actually going to have to, I, this one I actually don't remember, but my default here is a check. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so just to recap, I believe so the flop was, King, queen, five with the queen, five of diamonds, and then jack of diamonds on the turn. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. Check certainly seems right. It seems hard to imagine betting can be correct there. Although I guess you see all kinds of weird things in Sovereign Land. But yeah, that's that seems like a great card for my range. And you have you have the kind of hand that doesn't, I mean, I think prefers to check and see what develops. It becomes difficult if I then shove on you. Um, I think um, you're probably stuck calling, I guess, although. Hmm. Well, first, let's let's hear Andrew's thoughts on the check first. 
Yeah, I, I think that, as Matt said, the so two things have happened since the flop. Right? One is Matt called your bet, which is not quite trivial. I mean, it was a very small bet, so like he should be calling pretty often. Like the fact right. that he's calling is not really dramatically changing his range, but like presumably he is folding some hands. Um, so, you know, his range has gotten stronger as a result of him calling that bet. And then the third diamond coming is somewhat dramatically changing the board texture. Uh, the fact that it's a jack is also significant. Um, so that's putting some new two pair combinations, uh, maybe even some straights have, have become possible. Uh, and I think there's just a lot less that's accomplished by betting certainly by betting small a second time on on the turn. A lot of the arguments for betting small on the flop don't apply as well on the turn. So then you are going to be in a more polar, like I'm going to have a checking range and I'm going to have a range that's betting larger. And as Matt said, this seems like a hand that slots very clearly into the checking range. Just like, it's hard to see what what a bet with this hand really accomplishes. You're you're not really ahead of the top of Matt's range and you don't gain anything or very little from folding out the bottom. So I feel like starting with a check is not the hard part. <laughs> like, what do you do after you check is, is probably the hard part. Okay, so I agree with all that. The only thing that was kind of eye-opening to me in the solver here is that it does like a check here around 75% of the time, but occasionally it will bet something between like 10 or 15% of the time, and it will use like a 10% size. Yeah, I guess this is just one of those, like, it's really not that much of a difference when you're out of position, like betting small versus checking is, is not that much of a difference. But yeah, my, my heuristic on that has always been that like that that applies more on the flop than, than on the turn. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not wildly different to make a tiny bet here, although maybe maybe practically you have a slightly easier fold to a shove after a small bet because I'm probably less likely to have some bluff in my read. I mean, I don't even know if that's true, actually, because I, I'm not going to treat a 10% bet too differently from a check here in position either. So maybe that doesn't actually apply. Yeah, I think I think checking is probably preferred. All right. So I know what happens next. So so I went I went with the check and Matt jams for 19,000 in the 16. And now I'm here with top pair not knowing what to do. So I also don't know what to do. Okay, so 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 what what bluffs can I have? What bluffs can I have here? Let's let's think about this. Um, surely there's some, right? <laughs> let's think about it. Um, could I could I be turning a small? Could I be turning like two sixes, possibly with a diamond, into a bluff here? Yes, right. Like I could. This is really good for my range. If I peeled the small bet on the flop with like a small pair with a diamond in it, I could I could be turning that into. A bluff here. I think that's not crazy. A better bluff would be to have the ace of diamonds, of course, but I'm trying to see how I get here with just like a naked ace of diamonds that I would then bluff. Like surely I can have an ace of diamonds and have, you know, ace king, ace queen. Well, not ace king. I would have not. I, I can't show up with ace queen. Sorry, I can't show up with ace king and probably not ace queen either, although maybe I do flat sometimes actually pre flop with ace queen. What about like shoving ace jack with the ace of diamonds? to maybe get him off of a hand like king four that doesn't seem like the most unreasonable yeah i don't know if that would occur to me in real time to turn a hand that strong into like a semi bluff but um it's certainly yeah i mean i would think that probably plays better as like i'm not thinking there's too many weak kings in carlos's range here like that's not like i'm not thinking <laughs> right. there's too many weak top top <laughs> pair hands like point, yeah. um yeah so i i mean and it does raise a question so you can find some bluffs for me it's hard to find a naked um a sex, but I guess there could be something like 
king queen five i i guess it could be like I, I was trying to see if there's maybe some weird the problem is all the like gut shots either made a pair or, or a straight and you know if if i peeled with a backdoor flush draw then i don't have you know the ace of diamonds obviously so yeah i guess it would have to be what you said andrew it would have to be me deciding to like if i want to have some ace of diamonds in my range turning that that ace jack or i guess it could be okay i figured it out <laughs> I, <laughs> If if I well actually you know I was gonna say I could have ace five offsuit with the ace of diamonds but I don't think I make it to the flop with ace five offsuit. Yeah, it could be. Of course, could have ace five suited, but then I wouldn't have ace of diamonds. So it's it's there are some bluffs I can have here. I can't really have like there aren't like a lot of natural bluffs I don't think. So I think maybe exploitably, I I don't know if I have enough bluffs here. So you could maybe get away with folding some hands that might not look like right away and also if we look at if we look at carlos's range here i mean surely he's played like ace king the same way to this point um and maybe even stuff like king 10 you may maybe even checks the turn with something like king jack although that's less clear but anyway two aces as well probably play this way so there definitely are hands that you can call with that are not that are better than king four and because it is hard to give me too many bluffs here I think at least in practice, you can probably just fold. I don't know what the solver says, but I, I, it's just, it's that, that's such a bad card on the turn. I mean, there's just hard, right. to, it's hard. That card combined with me shoving, it's just like, it seems like I just have to have it. But maybe, I mean, not have to. Like I said, there's, we can find some ways I, I can, I can come up with a bluff here, but it's, it's, it's tough. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I, I would be surprised. And Carlos, I, I'd be curious to know from, from the sim whether Matt has shoves here. I think because the board has become much more static as a result of this uh, straight and flush completing card coming, um, and as Matt said, already going to be kind of struggling to uh, find bluffs here, especially hands that that want to bluff for a really big size. Like I think that you know, Carlos probably does have a set of hands that are folding if you just breathe on this pot, uh, like the pocket eights, no diamond, or, or something like that. So I I think the or like the, the way that I would approach this in in button shoes is look to to go geometric across two even though we only have like barely a pot size bet in stacks then that you know that means betting something like one third pot on the turn and then potentially following through with a one third pot shove on the river i'm not sure that i would have a shoving range here or i i, I would not have a shoving range here i'm not sure whether that's correct but that, that's my instinct i think it's a really good point andrew yeah yeah so what the solver says here is that matt checks back around half the time but when he does bet he splits primarily between a quarter pot bet or um half pot bet roughly and so it's a little bit more than half so the pot suck wait a minute oh, i'm looking at the wrong thing yeah so it's exactly half so either quarter pot or half on the turn are the preferred sizes but it does have a jam at like two percent of the time and when it does jam the bluff is pocket nines with a diamond there you go <laughs> um the uh yeah i think looking at this hand now i think that definitely jumps out of me as well andrew that like oh yeah I, this is since i've in the year or whatever it's been since we played this hand i think i've recognized exactly what andrew's talking about that like you really don't need to be shoving here even though there's there's often cases in the turn where you want to size up this isn't really one of them because it, it and i think andrew 
explained it really, really well, which is that if, if your opponent has a lot of hands in their range that have to fold to any size, then there's no reason really to to go with the big sizing. And so I think um, this was more of a, like back then I was still kind of like, oh, you know, we need to fold out all the like, you know, hands that have equity against me by making this big bet. But that that's kind of like an old school way of looking at this hand. And I think if we're looking at it more of how to maximize the value of my range versus Carlos's range, I think the smaller bet makes a lot more sense. And as a result of that, I think, I think actually, Carlos, you can take advantage of my mistake here by shoving, by maybe folding a bit tighter and probably letting this one go. What do you guys think of that? I agree with that. Yeah, I think that that's the exploit. Or like that that's what a small bet accomplishes for you is it gives him a, a decision with a hand like this one that that shoving you know, probably does not. Although, you know, sometimes there are those fish who are just like, why so much? <laughs> uh, and, you know, they, they call you because you've been big. Yeah, yeah. I will say this is uh, a spot where... I was one of those fish who called because <laughs> uh, I think the solver, I'm just trying to guess what the solver would do. And like uh, Matt said at the beginning of this conversation, that the solver really does not like to fold top pair in a lot of spots. But this isn't one of those spots. This is a spot where I should be folding this hand. But to Matt's earlier point, the solver calls 100% of the time if it has this hand with a diamond. And I think against actual human opponents, we can even fold those as well. The king of diamonds was possible to be holding, right? So I think, yeah, with the king of diamonds, I think you, I don't know how you could really fold here, I think, but. Yeah, so with the king of diamonds, I agree that's going to be more of a call, but even with, you know, the kicker, yeah, even if the four is a diamond, the solver likes to call here, but I think against human opponents, even human human opponents as good as Matt, we can probably deviate and fold those hands because like you said, Matt, it's hard for humans to find enough bluffs in this spot, especially for this size. It's funny what you say about the turn too, because I think we, we both kind of played this hand pretty reasonably up until the turn. We both really botched this, this <laughs> turn card. Like there's no way I should turns are hard. Yeah, turn turns are hard. And hopefully we're 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 better at it now. But um yeah, I think against humans, you're right. If a human does find a shove here, well, I don't know about the king. It can be tough to fold the king of diamonds even to, to a shove here. But yeah, I think you could probably fold against humans anyway with a with a weaker diamond. So so the king of diamonds is going to be, the EV of calling with the king of diamonds is going to be like seven point, roughly seven and a half uh, big blinds. So I think that's going to be way too much to give up. But shockingly, Having just the um, six of diamonds is actually worth six and a half big blinds. Mm, interesting. You know, a lot of times if the king, there's times when the king of diamonds is is just as useless as the four of diamonds, right? Because I, in theory, I mean, I don't know what, um, there's not supposed to be a shoving, right? Are we, you're looking at versus the 2% shove. Is that what we're doing? Yes. Yeah. Part of the problem is like, that's such a small frequency that, it, it might sometimes the solutions for those spots are pretty weird because the ranges are so narrow and specific that like it's it's adapting a strategy against like a two percent of hands that would do this so i don't know if we should draw too many lessons from that i think the main lessons are the ones you guys have already highlighted which is that i should i should have a smaller non-all-in sizing here playing to play across two streets both to extract a bit more value from my value hands and to lose less basically on whatever bluffs i can find and that you can you can exploit this is exactly kind of the reverse of um 
So you were the, the, the kind of mistakes I was talking about making at the beginning of the call. You kind of took, you could have kind of taken advantage of the fish mistake. Yes. Me, me being the fish here of like making this big shove and being like, oh, he's going to go that big. I can get away with folding here. So I think those are the two lessons. Yeah, those are the two lessons. And uh, to your point, instead of um, putting in a shove, I changed it to the half pot bet. And if you make the half pot bet, now calling with the, uh, actually shoving a lot with the king of um, diamonds is going to be worth an EV of five big blinds. And uh, calling with the uh, six of diamonds is only 1.7. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. 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 So I think that's the adjustment we can make in this spot against humans is um, go with the king and then uh, with the king of diamonds and fold if the kicker is a diamond. Um, but if you face the big bet that, you know, the all in bet, then you can just um, fold both, I guess. Or maybe even then you don't fold the king of diamonds. That part I'm still unsure of, uh, especially if we're struggling to find enough bluffs. Yeah, that that's if you have the king king diamonds X there, that's just a really tough spot, I think. But uh, failing that though, I think we can fold the the weak kings to and surprising overbet here. Yeah, yeah. But at the time I played this hand, I was definitely thinking like, man, this is gonna make for good content on the next time, Matt. On the show. <laughs> <laughs> so the money I lost in this hand was well worth it. So I call and Matt has ace 10 for the turn straight without a diamond. And so Matt kind of, you know, told me another, he kind of like led me to realize there was another thing in this hand that I was completely wrong on. Like he, you mentioned that you were surprised to see folds with Queen Jack. And I'm thinking like, shit, if people aren't folding Queen Jack to this, then this is definitely going to be uh, a little bit, it's going to hurt the um, the viability of the of this play. Yeah, I picked the wrong person. <laughs> I guess I picked the right person if I wanted to practice some GTO shit. But I think a lot of people were overfold to this, and Matt certainly did not. So it made for a fun discussion. Well, I mean, I might have over. Well, would I have overfolded? Um, I might have overfolded compared to GTO because while I was surprised that G that Queen Jack offsuit had some folds in the GTO solution, I will say that I don't think I would have called the big three bet against you with Queen Jack offsuit. I think I would have right. probably pure, purely folded that. And honestly, even with Ace Ten offsuit, I was like, man, I mean, I'm almost sure this is going to be a call theoretically, but I'm not happy about that. Like, I think I, I might have even folded Ace. <laughs> I might have even folded Ace Nine offsuit. So I think I think I probably would have honestly overfolded, at least according to theory, pre-flop. So I, I think your your pre-flop logic actually was probably sound and and good because like it's a relatively soft field. Why do I want to tangle with a good player? You know, with the kind of borderline parts in my range and like a big three bet pot and so to me the, the my preflop decision was actually somewhat close i just thought ace 10 was too good a hand to um be folding and then my flop call is of course fairly yeah. clear after that and then um we've 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 talked about my mistake on the turn i have a pretty clear bet i think on the turn but definitely not for um the all-in sizing it just it just doesn't make as much sense and yeah that, that's one just like circle back to the very first question andrew asked how's thinking changed in the last two years well i think yeah, a couple of years ago, and the reason I probably did this was, was like, oh, well, 
this is great for my range. That means I can just go big because I have this great range. Like, okay, well, we can actually do better than that though. Yes, it's great for my range. But that doesn't necessarily mean we should blast out every hand from opponent's range. We want to take maximum advantage of this card being so good for my range. So, and that's, I've seen a lot of situations like this. It's not just this spot. I've, when I've reviewed my own hands, I found a lot of spots like this where shove seemed really natural to me at the time. And then I look at it in the solver later and the solver is like, no, 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 just bet a third of your stack here. And I'm like, really? Oh, okay. I will, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Um, so, so yeah, I think this is, this is a good example of that. This was, um, I knew this was an interesting hand, but honestly, this was more interesting than I even remembered it. So thanks for, thanks for bringing it up. This is a cool discussion. No, no, thank you for discussing it with us. And I, I think, you know, for both you and I, this turn, the turn decisions, that was like the key teachable moment. And I think the same thing will be true for everyone who's listening. As as one listener, I can uh, agree with that. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Matt. Was there anything else uh, that you wanted to talk about that we haven't gotten around to? Uh, no, I don't think so. Check out the new book. Check out the last book, The Poker Brain. Um, for the newer players, you can check out the book before that, The Game Plan. I had a lot of fun writing this new one and it's a quick read and it's one you can kind of um, go back to. The hands are organized by theme. So there's a section on blockers, a section on bubble play. There's um, some hands from a tournament I won just for fun. And then there is um, a little bit about ranges. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's um, it's it's kind of like this. It's kind of like talking hands with uh, in book form. It's kind of like you get to relive some hands, go through some things that I was thinking about when you play them. We don't have the luxury of the back and forth, of course, that we have here, which is what makes your podcast so great. But we have everything except that, hopefully, from the new book. So, so please, so please check it out. Do you have a preferred place for people to get that from? Uh, it, yeah, Amazon, which is currently the only place you can get it from. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, uh, you can get all all my books on Amazon. Cool. Well, thank you again, Matt. Always good to talk to you. You as well. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Of a car, the light of the fair passage of a bill.